Hey guys, welcome to episode number 30 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, we're going to be joined by Jake Schuster. Jake is an American-born strength and conditioning coach who's accumulated quite a lot of international experience in his reasonably short career. He's still only in his mid-20s. He's worked in the Netherlands with the Olympic Association there. He's accumulated some experience working with high-level athletes in Germany. He's been based at Loughborough where he studied and worked as a coach. And now he's currently based in New Zealand, where he works with the men's and women's rugby seven squad, preparing for the forthcoming Olympics in Rio. Jake's also a PhD student. The topic of his doctorate is sprinting, namely its relationship to sevens performance and also how we can identify what kinds of sprinters our athletes are and then develop interventions to try and maximally improve performance to benefit on field performance. So in this episode, We get right into his journey as a coach, how he ended up on the other side of the world, his findings from his PhD, what kind of stuff we can learn from him and use with our own athletes in in rugby and other field-based sports. We also talk a little bit about who he listens to and why within the industry. Uh, One name that comes up is Franz Bosch, who I'm sure you'll be aware of from uh, listening to more recent episodes of the podcast. I've been trying to get my head around his concepts and and find out what the real value is to me as a coach and, and to my athletes. And uh, as a personal acquaintance of friends, I think Jake's really well positioned to talk about this. You know, this episode is is quite technical at times. So if you're a sprint geek, uh, I'd really recommend you listen to this episode. And if not, there's still a ton of good information that you can take away from, especially if you're an up-and-coming coach who wants to work in a foreign country. Now, if you like this episode, make sure you check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive online members area where each month we share video presentations from elite level strength and conditioning coaches like Jake on a host of different topics that are important to strength and conditioning coaches working in the field. This is not just what you have to learn for an accreditation or for your degree. This is the really important stuff that coaches worry about every single day in the trenches. Not only that, we've got a discussion area where you can you can share ideas, you can share resources, ask questions and get advice from members all over the world, different sports, not just rugby. And lastly, we have a career advice section where you can speak to coaches who have been there, done it, trod the path that you want to tread and hopefully save yourself a lot of time, money and effort and, and avoiding the mistakes that they've made and that I know I've made as a coach. If you want to check that out, go to rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members and make sure you enter the coupon code TRIAL at the checkout and you'll be able to sample the website for one day, one pound. If you like it, keep it. Uh, If you don't, that's no problem. You can just cancel straight away. But without further ado, enjoy this episode with Jake and I'll speak to you soon. Jake, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you today, Keir? I'm not too bad, mate. You know, we've had a week off uh, last week. We gave the boys a week off and then this week's uh, afternoon sessions only. So any week that I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. is a good week. I've seen some pretty gruesome Instagrams there. I'm thinking, man, I am sound asleep. Dude. Well, it's the Japanese work ethic, but yeah, I won't get into that. (laughs) So um, what's your background? My background is born in Boston, Massachusetts. I went to my undergrad close to D.C., close to Washington, D.C., study exercise science, pretty standard was just about good enough to make the roster to NCAA Division three level for both lacrosse and wrestling. Um, like most people, was too busy chasing skirts and honing my beer pong skills to take care of myself well enough to fulfill any potential that a slow white boy could have. Um, loved Maryland so much that I had to get the fuck out after three years. Sorry, iTunes. Um, and moved to Amsterdam for a year abroad. Worked with the Olympic Federation there with three of their national teams. 
did a gap year in Berlin, Germany, master's at Loughborough University, um, with a few stops in the middle. About a year later, I wound up in, uh, in New Zealand, where I presently am the PhD student for New Zealand rugby. So, you know, this is my experience of um, collegiate athletics. At, at the D3 level, how, how serious is it? How kind of full-time? Because I know at the D1 level, the big schools, you're, you're a pro athlete that doesn't get paid. That's right. That's right. Um, well, in terms of level, so we still have, I knew multiple state champs from high school who couldn't crack the starting lineup. So it was a pretty high standard of sport. Um, in terms of the commitment here was six days a week, three hours a day. And then most, most Saturdays, yeah, most Saturdays, uh, you, you're gone all day somewhere else around the country competing. Wow. So that was only about, that was only about five months out of the, out of the nine that you're at uni instead of, you know, year round camps and all that stuff like, like D1. Yeah. So what what prompted the the desire to become a coach because you know from my end i wanted to be a coach the moment i realized i was a terrible athlete <laughs> pretty pretty similar here yeah so <laughs> you you were studying to become a coach anyway when you when you became a, a, a division three athlete or was it during your That's university right. career yeah yeah but i knew i wanted to study sports science right off the bat the only other things that really interest me that I would have had the, the work ethic to do. Like I've got, I've got a lot of doctors in the family and a lot of lawyers and I, I would have fit in either career. Um, and geology and history are the only other things that interest me. So I knew I was going to go into sport. Yes. <laughs> so just kind of wound up in it. And, and I don't think I thought that coaching would take me to do all the things I've been lucky enough to do so far, but it just kind of happened. Mm. So how did you get that connection at Amsterdam or what prompted that decision? Because that's a big decision to make. It was big, yeah. So most people just assume that I smoke a lot of weed, which is not the case. Um, <laughs> just a moderate I, amount. No, just, just on weekends. Um, I, I, had a, oh, I still have a big interest in the age of discovery and colonialism, so I'd always been interested in Holland. And they had a pretty good connection with my university and had a really good like sports nutrition um, program and a really good connection with their Olympic Federation. I mean, it's a really small country, mm. and one of their training hubs was where this university was based. So I knew that by going there, I'd be placed with national teams right away. And so you started within sports nutrition, not the actual physical training. I went and did a sports nutrition minor to finish off my undergrad, but my internship while there was actually SNC. Oh, okay. So which teams are you working with there? I was working with the women's rugby sevens program and the under twenty one basketball and soccer teams. And how did you find that? You know, I asked. Uh, I've asked previous guests this. You've worked in a similar situation. How do you approach that kind of challenge where you've got multiple sports? Are you are you, are you given quite a generalized program to just stimulate stuff that sport practice doesn't stimulate, or are you actually taking quite a specific approach to those three sports, but then obviously making a lot more work for yourself? Yeah, I was pretty lucky that I was still just in an assistant position there, Kier. But I, what I took from Paul Lummer as the guy I was working under in the NSF there was that find your big rocks and the exercises that you know work and that you love and that you, you know how to coach very well and have those everywhere and then, you know, paintbrush over the top. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a place where you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, you know, there are certain lifts that we like for all field sport athletes and then you can't do skill specific or, you know, combo drills for carryover or for transfer rather 
with soccer athletes the same as you can with basketball athletes. So a lot of stuff is more indoors with them or even on court. And then um, the, the Dutch take a very specific approach to training. They're big into their dynamical systems theory. So a lot of our SNC work was, you know, on the pitch or the court. Mm. So that year finished, then you, you went to the gap year in Berlin. Yeah. Was it that you you kind of ran out of steam in terms of, of learning and you needed a break or was it just... You know what happened? <laughs> that was what it was. That's not how it happened. I, I didn't know that I was out of steam. I went and did my final internship for the end of my undergrad or the end of that exchange year in Berlin. I was just working in a biomech lab at a university there and thought that I wanted to go straight to PhD. Enrolled, hated it, quit after three months and then just took the year to kind of line up a master's program uh, wherever I thought best and I ended up getting into Loughborough University. So I had to quit my nice little downtown studio apartment and girlfriend in Berlin and then go and live in the middle middle of nowhere in England. But that year was pretty much just spent doing random internships, writing for sports magazines, personal training, partying a whole lot. Yeah. You know, and it's, I actually think sometimes that path is better to take than the most direct path. Absolutely. Because when, when you do get what you want at the end of it, you've, you've earned it. And also you've accumulated some experience outside of that and, and maybe learned a few things. Well, I think we move so fast in life nowadays and I'll never forget Phil Watson at Loughborough saying to me, you know, everyone's in a rush these days. Like just let things happen. And uh, when I, when I was kind of in the process of, of separating myself from that PhD in Berlin, I remember thinking my life was over, thinking everyone was going to pass me by, everyone in the field was going to get ahead. Um, I have no qualms about saying that that year was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm, mate, same same for me when I left uh, the Roosters in 2014. Yeah, I told people I'd left and they said, what the fuck have you done? Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's all good. So you're, you're at Loughborough. What course did you do there? I was in the Sports Nutrition and Physiology Masters. And which teams were you working with? I just worked with the women's rugby team there, so they um, they weren't very well funded, and they needed an S and C for 15 season. And I'll admit, I didn't think that much of it when I got started because I was doing my masters, I was playing lacrosse for the university, I was doing a lot of different things. But it turned out to be an amazing year. We were undefeated national champions, got promoted into the second division in England. We won six of the ten tournaments that we entered in seven season. Just had an amazing summer. So that was when I really fell in love with rugby. Yeah, and and what were the differences for you? working with uh, female athletes versus male athletes because you know my my limited experience of seeing female rugby athletes at university level is you know sometimes not the best mm. uh, it's my experience that female athletes are much easier to work with and much more coachable than men are <laughs> just because the ego's not there so much yeah just the ego's not there and um yeah i, I think that um Women, might, it might be a little bit harder to earn their trust in terms of the coach-athlete relationship. Mm. But once you've earned it, you've earned it. And I yeah. think men are a little bit more flighty. That men, as egos, we can be a little bit more up and down. And so I think at the beginning of sessions, you often have to judge, kind of have to judge the mood. Um, whereas with female athletes, I think you more often know what you're getting because they know how to switch on a little bit more. Um, I'm sure this is all going to come across as very controversial, but I've always found female athletes to be much more coachable um, and simple to work with. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, I've, I think the most athletes, female athletes I've coached is maybe like a couple just in a random session. So it's not really something that I've got experience with at all. 
It's definitely it's a different ball game. It's a different skill set. There's you know there's a lot of different things to consider, obviously. But yeah, it's my experience that women are more at peace with switching on and being led, whereas mm. men it's a lot a lot more different buttons that you have to push. Yeah, I think I would have to modify my approach somewhat just because most training days I will run through the gym and slap ass everyone just to just to bring the energy. <laughs> no, you have lots of different kinds of fist bumps and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just a slight modification. So <laughs> why, did, why did you decide to go to New Zealand? Was it an opportunity that led you there or did you go there and then kind of start the PhD? No, I've, uh, I've never been to this part of the world. It hadn't even really occurred to me here. And I was postmasters in the Miami area working for Eric Cressy, kind of plotting my next move when um, a professor in New Zealand, who I'd shaken hands with at a conference twice, called me up and said, hey, I've got a scholarship with your name on it. Do you want to come across? And although I actually ended up switching scholarships and switching projects and moving across to New Zealand rugby, that was how I ended up in New Zealand. What, what was the initial project? It's actually a youth athletic development scholarship working with a uh, college or high school here, working with their rugby teams and, and upskilling their youth athletic development program. Mm, and then you switch to the, the current topic, which is? Now it's trainability of sprinting proficiency or trainability of sprint acceleration. So working on getting the sevens teams faster for Rio. Okay, so let's let's get into the, the meat of this. What, what, are, what have been the major findings of your PhD and... You know, kind of based on those findings, what kind of interventions have you developed, and what what has it has it you know borne the fruit that you hoped it did? Sure. Um, I'm just trying to think what I can say and what's under embargo. So, I can tell you that we're using JB Marin and uh, Pierre Samazino's force velocity power profiling methods mm-hmm. to profile the athletes and, and look at where their strengths and weaknesses are in terms of application of force, um, whether an athlete is velocity dominant or force dominant in their sprinting proficiency and the relationship between technical variables and actual sprinting performance. So um, my colleague Alex Ross working with the men's sevens program and now with Blues and I'll be moving on to USA Rugby. He's done fantastic work uh, showing kind of what we need for a sevens performance and no surprise speed. It's a huge correlative. 10 and 40 correlate extremely strongly with uh, line breaks, defenders beaten, and tries scored. Through Marin and colleagues' work, we know that these certain technical variables related to the application of force and power are very strongly related to actual sprint performance in terms of split times. So it kind of said, if we know A relates to B, B relates to C, let's see if we make A better and see if that actually improves B and C. Very simple science, but in the end, it, it actually has gotten quite hairy because it's a single subject design in an Olympic year. So... That, that's been quite fun, but the major things that we've done so far here are are, um, are investigate and, and show so far we have shown that enhancing the technical proficiency of sprinting improves sprinting performance. So I've designed and implemented a training intervention. It's basically one of the girls' five major workouts per week uh, in which we do a bunch of, kind of greatest hits. Let's list my favorite drills from Bosch, Winkleman, and Path all just aimed at improving their, their sprinting mechanics. And lo and behold, it took a couple months, but we're showing a lot of difference in their sprinting. Okay. So you mentioned JB Marin's model. Is, that, is the assessment that you're implementing examining horizontal force or both horizontal yes. and vertical? 
Nope, it's horizontal force. So the radar units that we're using here can show, well, they do show, it's actually, I'd say, my primary variable, horizontal versus vertical ratios, or the ratio of forces, as they call it. We're not doing vertical profiling, so we're not doing jump profiling. So it's just sprint profiling. And what specifically are you looking at in terms of that horizontal uh, force production? Is it uh, relative, absolute, total force, all that kind of yep. stuff? So so we, we have absolute peak force output, which is basically equated as the first step. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only horizontal, so anything vertical does not equate. Yep. Like ratio of horizontal to vertical force is peak, which is obviously the first step, and then at 10 meters. Mm. Uh, and then we're looking at absolute velocity and power max, um, peak power. Um, and that's relative, not absolute. Yeah. So those are my five major variables. Uh, and we found so far, yes, I can say it's very strong correlations between both uh, peak power and 10 and 40, peak force and 10, and peak velocity and 40, which doesn't necessarily tell us anything that we didn't suspect. It's more confirming all of Marin's research, San Azino's research, in a rugby sevens population. Yeah. So, you know, in acceleration, you're going to be, or athletes who do well in the 10 are going to be more hanging out on that left side of the, the force velocity curve, longer duration contact time, slower movement velocities, and then as you get up to top speed, you just have to be super, super fast. That is sometimes the case here, yes. What we do actually find, though, is that it's all over the place. So an athlete can have a different force velocity slope in any case. Yeah. Um, and because if we look... You know, from from where you're sitting, looking at me, if we if we have or for the audience, you have you have a top left. That's the the absolute peak force, mm. and the bottom right is the absolute peak velocity. And when you're not, you know, when you're not moving, that's when you express your peak force. And when you're at top speed, yeah. By the definitions of physics, you can't be expressing any force. Otherwise, you'd be accelerating or decelerating. Yeah. So within that slope, and then that bell curve of power obviously yeah. comes across the middle. Within that slope you can have all sorts of different options for athletes which would actually have the same split time. So someone could be more velocity dominant and they will be stronger across 40 than 10, but they might have the same 10 as someone who's more force dominant because that velocity is actually expressed greater throughout the entire slope. Yeah. So it, it gets a bit fishy and I, I think we, we found out a lot of cool stuff in the last 10 years through these, these research groups. I think there's a lot more to figure out and I think more so yeah, finding out what is important to coaches is the money. So, you know, you can break down really simple and not even do the profiling and just say, what velocity can you reach by 20 meters? That's what we want to know. And that's a KPI for the team. You'd also say, what's your peak power? And at what distance are you reaching it? And see if we can improve that. So I think there's a whole bucket of things that we're finding out. And now we have to sort through it. Mm. And you mentioned you're looking at the relationship between technical variables and sprint performance. How do, you, how do you measure technical mastery? Is it eyeball or are there certain kinematics that you're looking at to say, you know, this is an accomplishment or this is not? So when we say technical variables, in this case, Kira, we mean entirely those variables which we just spoke about. So the ratio of forces, the peak, oh, horizontal, okay. our max. So, okay. so for the purposes of this thesis, we're presuming that those technical variables are representative of mechanical efficiency. Um, oh, yeah. I wanted to look at a few other things. I wanted to investigate... Um, Franz Bosch's um, knee drive pass toe off theory and a few things like that. We can do that on a case study uh, basis, but with a, a big cohort in the middle of an Olympic drive, it's it's proved not terribly feasible. But the cool thing that we can see is that you know this this profiling is doing something and that means something. So if an athlete 
improves there. You know, nothing else improves beyond, you know, smallest worth, worthwhile change except peak force. And then they improve their peak force and their 10 time improves. Sweet. Not only have we correlated strongly, you know, at a, at a cross-sectional level, the peak force and the 10 time, but we show, crucially, if the peak force improves. Yes. If the, if the peak force improves, then the 10 time improves. That's pretty neat. Which is what it's all about. Exactly. So we want to see, you know, we have KPIs for a reason, right? We often have to remind ourselves of this. It's like, I mean, do we show that, like, you know, we can't show that if someone's yo-yo time uh, improves, then they make fewer mistakes in the second half of the game. We're still a few years away from that kind of tech, those kind of stats. But if we can say that if they get better at X, then they definitely get better at Y. Then we can hang our, <clears throat> sorry, we can hang our hat on X yeah. as something actually means something for Y. Yeah, for sure. Like I said to someone the other day, like it annoys me when you see studies that are just correlations because, you know, for example, Olympic lifting and jump performance, you'd expect someone who's really good at vertical jumping to be really good at Olympic lifting because they're explosive. So you're not, your job as a coach is not necessarily correlation. It's effect size. Like how much are you changing them rather than, oh, look, he's good at two things. That's right. And we've been, we've been going entirely off effect size. So I very much subscribe to to Will Hopkins' way of approaching stats here and then magnitude-based inferences. And it, it can be quite heavy at times, <laughs> stats-wise. But, yeah. but honestly, I, I think the p-value is dead and it's time to see what are the Pearson correlations between stats. Okay. Because then we can see, you know, what I'm really interested in is within this cohort, you know, are the girls the best? You know, we can look at across team stats. Sure, you know, does does peak force relate to ten times sweet ass? What does that actually mean? Yeah. But now what we're really doing is saying, does the athlete with the best peak force in the team also have the best ten time? And yeah. that's where it gets really fun. Yeah, and of course, you know, with a with a p value, it can be super super significant, but the improvement might be minuscule and you might have invested a huge amount of, of training time and effort so really it's, it's about bang for your buck rather than significance that's right that's right so i think those response is going to be huge for me investigating in the future but right now it's just smallest worthwhile change within a single subject design yeah and do you have any examples from your research of, of guys where you look at their force and you think wow this guy should be absolutely killing the speed but then the, the times necessarily aren't there, but then you have other guys that just move perfectly and they're actually outperforming the, the more powerful guys. Yes. Often these athletes are deficient in one area of the force velocity spectrum, but they have one stat which just stinks. Um, yeah. These technical variables that we've spoken about are all pretty, pretty well related, maybe with the exception of peak power. So if someone is, you know, you, you won't find many cases here where they stink at one stat, but are good at all the other ones. Um, yeah. Pretty much, they're good technically from a physics perspective. They're good. They're good. Yeah. Um, but what you do see is someone who has pretty good technical variables and is kind of an exception to the rules that we're talking about. And the split times won't be great. Um, and usually, this comes down to something like general understriding, very poor arm mechanics, or excessive rotation. And that's when we we break out the Bosch drills and we have them run with their arms crossed and all sorts of fun stuff. And and it cleans right up. Yeah. Do you, on the subject of Franz Bosch, like I've got a couple of guys staying with me, strength coaches at the moment, and we were getting into uh, discussions uh, about Franz Bosch and his book and, you know, the guys that I was with name dropped a couple of big coaches <laughs> that they'd spoken to about his work. And 
the answer was the same. It it it, it provokes thought, it provokes questions and on paper it works and it's a nice idea, but ultimately, you know, where where are the gold medals? Do you what's your what's your take on him? Is it my take on his work is that perhaps when you are a novice or when you are rehabbing, some of that stuff is really, really good, but eventually you still have to put all the pieces back together and, and, and sprint to, to fully see the the improvement in performance. I don't think that a lot of the drills that have become associated with Franz Bosch's name guarantee an improvement in performance. couple of thoughts there. So full disclosure, Franz has been uh, an advisor on my project. He's been extremely helpful. He's given me a lot of ideas and feedback on my intervention. I think it's become quite in vogue to criticize him and yeah. to slash him. I'll call out my friend Stu McMillan, you know, questioning whether whether Franz has done anything or, or coached any good teams. I think that's hogwash. He's coached some great teams. Um, I think Franz's work is no different from anyone else's work on the face of the earth and in history in that we have to take the stuff that we find works yeah. and let the rest stay in theory and, you know, take something as, oh, okay, that's an opinion, that's a way of looking at things, that's interesting. Not that's black, that's white, that's good, that's bad. Yeah. I think we have to look at it and say, here's what I'm going to take from this and I'm going to move on. Just yeah. like we take something from Westside Barbell or we take something from FMS or whatever. Yeah. You know, I think... I think Franz's work is so transcendent and so Machiavellian in terms of being so different from everything that we know that people think it, that we have to take the whole book. Yeah. You know, I think you spoke to me about, um, you know, you hate when coaches that they'll read his book and they'll go out and everything that they do the next day is, is one of his drills. That's, that, that is silly. Of course it's silly. But that's not to say that a really good sprint program doesn't have a place for nearly every day overhead stick running, arms cross running, a few different constraints drills, you know, yeah. you know, on the other side of the coin here, I think most coaches would say, yeah, I disagree with Franz that, you know, you don't have to do traditional weightlifting. Is there something to be said that most um, contractions in sport are done at, at the far end of the force velocity spectrum? So therefore a very fast movement or a near isometric movement? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of our training should be either, I don't know, it's an overused word, but should either be explosive or should be isometric or near enough. Um, I like those concepts. Uh, but again, we don't have to take, you know, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say, don't lift weights. I think, I think people get too extremist about it. Yeah, for sure. So you've, you, you've done your profiling of guys. You've identified who is a force dominant athlete, who's a velocity dominant athlete. What does yeah. it look like when you develop an intervention to address each of those different types of athletes? Can't talk about that. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I can say. Look, I, I can say this. I can say we have at the end of every paper by Moran and Sam, as you know, over the last ten years, they've said each athlete has a unique force velocity slope and profile. Therefore, individualized training programs can be built to enhance the velocity characteristics of a force-dominant athlete or the force characteristics of a velocity-dominant athlete. Now someone should go make a training intervention about this. I've made that training intervention. I'm not the first someone, um, what's his name? Um, Pedro Jimenez, I think, is presenting at ECSS next week about his own pilot study, but we're also doing something on this. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've got an idea about how it would look, but um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to beat you over the head to talk about it. 
So, what what does a typical training week look like with with an international sevens team? I know you've we, you, you've alluded to this before we start recording that it, it varies quite a lot, but what what would a general week look like? So my boss Matt Kretz is a fantastic operator, and he runs the program here with the women's team. And Matt Harvey, excuse me, Mark Harvey with the men's sevens program is a totally different background and also runs an excellent program. Uh, a typical week, now, now you have to remember that rugby sevens national teams are a lot like a club. So they're a full-time job. They don't really have anywhere else to go play on the weekends. This is their gig. And when they play, it's extremely dense volume, but then they don't play for a while. So it really depends on when the block is. If you're, you know, if you don't have a, a tournament for another month, what it would look like is we do usually four or five lifts in a week. So we lift quite a lot, but they're quite short and sharp in and out of the door in well under an hour. And that's usually in the morning and the afternoon is either conditioning or rugby or both. So they'll come in, they'll do their weights, usually about nine. Then midday, we'll go outside, play some rugby, run some conditioning, and then go home. So it's it's twice a day, usually five days a week. Uh, so you, you prefer like a, a morning to, to mid-afternoon and then done? Yeah. Yeah, we like to get, get everyone done for the day by three at the latest. Are you, are you looking for that stress to be quite equally distributed over the week? Or are you having key, key loading days within the week? We definitely have key loading days. We have um, usually one, if not two days a week here where... The morning session is like a work-on session or, you know, stability session, mobility, however you want to call it. And then the rugby session is what we call the micro-skills session. So it's usually a 40-minute in and out, you know, your own work-ons. Whereas there are other days where there's, you know, solid hour uh, lifting session, which is quite, quite fatiguing, quite stressful, followed by, you know, an hour of rugby tactics, followed by 20 minutes of, uh, of you know, running conditioning. So... It's it's quite quite traditionally periodized. Um, Critzy Critzy runs a really tight model there, and yeah. it's all based around movement competency. So he's the one who wrote the, the movement competency screen, the MCS, as his own PhD project. Um, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, just kidding. <laughs> he's forty, so I call him old. Uh, and and we do very regular testing, so almost at every single training camp. So usually not less than once a month. And okay. Critzy periodizes really, really well based around how the girls are looking. Okay. Now, I think, you know, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it is the case that, you know, International Sevens Tournament is quite a unique challenge to prepare athletes for because how many games is it in a, in a weekend if you go to the final? Six. Yeah, six times. It's, it's usually six no matter what. I think yeah. every team gets, gets five, no, five or six games, yeah. And it's uh, seven minutes a half in the group stages, and then the the knockouts is at ten. It's it's seven right up until the final, so it's kind of a funny one that only the cup final in sevens is ten. Yeah. What unique steps do you have to take to be able to equip athletes physically to be able to handle those those kind of demands over a weekend? Because it it doesn't fit with the traditional rugby model of you have one eighty minute game on a Saturday and then you you get you get to recover. You have to keep recovering throughout the weekend. I, I think the pretty neat thing about Sevens gear is that uh, something I'm pretty nerdy about, uh, logistics, professionalism, nutrition, lifestyle is right at the forefront. So a team, you know, there are lots of teams on the series, both men's and women's, who can beat anyone on any day, but they can't 
I'll never put together six good games in a row. Argentina. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why it's usually the same teams winning. And you'll get a surprise finalist, you'll get a surprise semifinalist all the time. You often get these upset wins in the, in the pool stages, but usually it's, a, it's the same teams in the finals, and there's a reason for that. So professionalism, then if you go to any rugby sevens tournament at any, at any level, you finish your game, you've got to turn around, you, you know you have to get back together in whatever, 75 minutes to warm up for the next match. So everything from getting your legs up to getting compression to maybe some hot cold to your nutrition is extremely important. Turning around in 75 minutes for a new bout of basically sprinting for 50 minutes straight is pretty unique in sports. And besides that, within the single match demands gear, um, you know, Sevens is right up there with AFL in terms of the athletes need everything. They need their game skills. They need to be able to run for days. They need to shake and bake. You know, they have to be able to tackle. They have to be able to jump. So sevens is pretty darn unique and i'd say the short answer to your question is you just have to be super super switched on with your lifestyle and your management and your logistics so uh, presumably the, the support staff are extremely important within you know helping the team succeed i'd like to think so yeah <laughs> i think you're more uh, logistics manager <laughs> yeah yeah no no we travel with um uh the team travels with a manager assistant and analysts and uh, critsy on the SNC. Wow. And do you think that training volume prior to competition plays quite a large uh, role in that? Because, you know, I, one of the ideas that I have, you know, in, in, in a couple, you know, the last couple of years is, is the idea of creating this, this buffer between the demands of competition and, and what the athlete is capable of. So speed mm. reserve, power reserve, strength reserve, all of those are going to increase sustainability of efforts and repeatability of efforts. Do you think there's there's an argument there for training volume as well? You know, you, you want to train with such high volumes that effectively an international sevens tournament feels like a holiday. Within yes. reason, within reason. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So rather than, you know, people talk about um, minimum effective dose, yeah. could you make a case there to actually exceed minimum effective dose and and give them what they can handle not what they need it's, it's kind of flips on the head what hank kronhoff talks about minimum effective dose is great for strength training it's great for a few other things not not for raw volume i'm absolutely subscribed to tim gabbett's you know the load that you can withstand before you're at risk for an injury in a match is directly related to the load that you've applied in training yeah. and, and I mean, our trainings are hard. These athletes absolutely get smoked at least a couple of times a week. And I, I think that, I mean, you know, I've worked under Eric Custer, so, you know, I, I think that carefully managing your athletes is a pretty high priority. I also believe that, that we've gone as a field too far in the other direction. And we do have to, do have to smoke our athletes a couple of times a week, you know, and, and how and when that relates to their actual competition, um, that's something that I don't think we've reached as a field. We don't know if we need to taper or if that's even such a thing. We don't know if we need to go low and come back up closer to the day of. I don't think we understand that yet. But I do think that in the abstract, if you're, you know, two weeks before a competition, you got to be hammering it. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Is there anything that you've changed your mind about as a coach or, or some hard lessons that you've learned as a coach in the last couple of years? Is there anything that I haven't changed my mind about? <laughs> what, what have been the big ones then? Oh man, that's such a good question. <laughs>
Uh, let me share one with. I'll share one with you whilst you think, right? So okay. we, we talked about this the other day at the first attempt at recording this. And for me, it was, I told myself, well, obviously the boys, they've not done t- uh, speed work, real speed work before. I'm going to go into uh, a month of tempo, work on technique, a month of build-ups and sleds. And then in the, the third phase of preseason, I'll be ready to do top-end speed. So we busted out the gates, started doing flying tens to measure speed, and I had two hamstrings in two weeks. And I saw a video from Richard Feynman at the, at the blackboard and he said, it doesn't matter how beautiful your idea is. It doesn't matter how important you are. It doesn't matter how much you know. Yeah. If, if the reality does not uh, complement your theory, you need to change your theory. So what I learned the hard way was, well, maybe 100% top speed uh, is, is not necessary or, or wise in this case to, to raise maximal sprinting speed. And, you know, everyone likes to talk about, again, stolen from Franz Bosch, you know, the, the athlete cares remarkably little about what the coach has to say. In my head, it was like, right, I'm going to give them the time. They're going to self-organize around mm-hmm. this data, correct their technique and improve their sprinting speed. And, you know, I think what ha- actually happened was they were so, they were trying so hard to get a good mm-hmm. time to improve their time uh, and to, to look good in front of the boys that technique actually went out of the window. So yeah. the lesson that I've had to learn there is actually maybe, maybe Charlie Francis is a little bit wrong. You don't have to run at 95 to 100%. Well, maybe Charlie Francis is wrong with rugby athletes. Maybe you don't have to run at 100% and really be strict about the stopwatch and quality, quality, quality in terms of the time that you run. Maybe for our boys, it's going to be more appropriate to run in that 90 to 95% range and say, actually, don't worry about the time. Just stay relaxed and, and stay consistent. Well, I think RPE and effort is, is a big, big, big factor that we have only dipped our toes in an exercise prescription here because I would half agree with you and say I think I maintain that there's no, you know, you can have all the drills in the world that there's no greater stimulus that will improve your speed than running as fast as you can. Yeah. Um, I think the way that you go about programming that is very open to interpretation. And I think if you put up stopwatch times or, you know, sorry, if you put up, you know, split times, then technique might go out the window and they might not self-organize. However, if you put them in, I like a simple chase drill, put a ball on the ground right in front of an athlete, put another athlete right behind them, they're at the 22 and you say, go score a try, you, you catch them, you tag them and they'll run fast. They'll figure out how to run fast. I've just stolen that. <laughs> Good, I'll send you a video. I absolutely love it. Um, and, the, and the pickup, I love um, John Pryor taught, taught me that one that he said, um, you know, the, it, it, it's that... Uh, what is it? The stumble, stumble reflex is one from Franz, you know. But if they have to pick it up off the ground, start in the, in the low position, then, then they push off better. Love that drill. So, you know, that's an environmental constraint, right? Is there, they're in a game-like situation and they have to run as fast as they can. I absolutely agree. If you, if you put numbers in, then, then the athlete ego comes in and they get real worried and that technique gets worse. Um, but a certain athlete um, who we've both worked with, who's opted across a lot of codes, um, we were just running velocities. I didn't, didn't have the computer hooked up, just had the radar gun the other day. And he was a little bit ticked off that he couldn't hit the numbers that some of his teammates were hitting. And so he, just, he wanted to do another rep and another rep and another rep. And his third and fourth try were worse than his first two. And he was trying to. <laughs> and, you know, um, so yeah, okay. To, to, to answer your original question, if that's okay, something I've changed my mind about. The importance of technical knowledge uh, starting about 
two years ago, I, I stopped, stopped chasing, you know, I stopped chasing cars with that, you know, saying, oh, I have to learn everything about this and that and that and saying, man, being, a, first of all, two things, right? Being a good coach, knowing how to look at an athlete and make decisions, talk to an athlete and make decisions, look at a crowded room and a certain set of equipment and make decisions. That's way more important than your technical knowledge. Um, you know, whether you can get along with a head coach, um, learn how to do the, pr the program you'd stay on, stayed up all night planning in 45 minutes as opposed to 75 minutes, you know, and a hundred other things like that here. That's way more important than whether you know everything there is to know about velocity-based training or whether you know, you know, some such and such guy's method of teaching that drill. Like, give me a break. It, it, I think I think there are enough smart people out there that if you just know the basics and then go around and do some good professional development, visiting other clubs and coaches and organizations a couple times a year, and you watch them, you pick up one drill from everywhere you go, and you know how to really teach that drill and coach that drill, you're going to have plenty in your toolkit. Yeah. But there's a hundred other people skills, soft skills, whatever you want to call them, that a lot of people stink at, that I'm very much still on the upslope of the learning curve at. And if your head's buried in a book or some blog like you're not gonna have any time to learn that stuff mm. and we talked about it before with uh scott cochran uh, alabama football mm. and you know people make a big deal out of the fact that they're paying them half a million dollars a year well they pay their head coach like six six million a year so he's, he's getting a tenth of what his head coach is getting and people remark about what he's like technically as a coach but my reply to that is well Maybe he's not the best technically as a coach, but I can go out and find you 10 PhDs right now to, to cover his back, technically speaking. But Absolutely. You're going to struggle Absolutely. to find someone who, who has those people skills, who inspires energy around his, his, uh, his athletes, who has that relationship with his head coach. It's really, really difficult to find people like that. And you, you need a blend of, of people like that within an S&C team. Oh, yeah. And you, you can't, you know, there's, there's, there's things that you can learn and there are things that you're born with or things you can develop over time and there are things that you can and can't get through the Greek here and you, you you can't teach a special personality you know you can't and you can't learn temperament and communication skills in classroom so so someone who's really special in that area or has become special in that area is worth their weight in gold yeah maybe not half a million but <laughs> it's, it's a good wage so um you do a podcast too I do and uh Man, you get some some serious fucking guests on your podcast. Who have been the the most significant guests for you? The ones that you learned the most from and took the most away from? One of the bigger names who turned out to be one of the most normal Joes when you got on the phone with him, David Epstein. Yeah, really, really enjoyed chatting with him. Um, uh, it's too bad I haven't been back to the states since I talked to him. But he just said. Yeah, call me next time you're in New York, we'll go for a run. I mean, he was just a normal dude. And and um, I think it was like the first question I asked him, I was being a knucklehead, and I asked him about like the 10,000 hour rule. And he just laughed at telling me some different stuff about his intentions for the book versus what people actually reacted to and made a big deal of. And and hearing things like that behind the creative process was pretty, pretty fun and pretty different from what I was used to. Um, Kevin Tipton was another favorite of mine. I had met him uh, when I, I almost went to Sterling for my master's and, and went just talk basketball with him. I <laughs> visited, and he's just a smart, level-headed guy. I think I, I'd rather talk to the people who have been in this field 
almost too long and have become, I think, in an informative way, a bit jaded with everything and just have these great level-headed perspectives. I'd rather talk to them than the kind of in their prime hotshots who are very much saying, this is the way of doing things, you know. Mm. Dan Path comes to mind. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I need to get him on the podcast soon. I think it was um, Rob Pacey had him on, on his the other day. He did. Yeah. He, I, I enjoyed it. I spent like two hours just talking to him one-on-one when I was at, at Altus in October, and he's a very wise man. I still need to go there, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there. So, st- stolen from Tim Ferriss. I know you found this entertaining. Give me a couple of books that you recommend or give to people a lot. Uh, two training, two non-training. And why? Training, um, I will cop out again and say Franz's book because I think gives you something different. You know, if you've read, you know, make sure you go and read Verkoshansky and make sure you go and read everything that you're supposed to read in school, but then go and read something which turns that upside down with the mindset that it's just one opinion here, one opinion there. There's no right and wrong. Um, second one is another cop out and I'd say um, David Joyce's books because they're awesome but also because you realize that he's got practitioners from a dozen different countries contributing to those books that he's curated and you see there are a million different ways to do things and all those people are successful first of all and second of all there are commonalities between all of them and you have to read and go find out what they are but it informs you on how to go about your profession. Yeah. And what would those non-training books be? Two non-training books. The one, um, they're both his, historical books. Um, I know I, everyone has their favorite like philosophy and growth and leadership books. Um, I really want to go and read Andrew Fragile soon. So like I won't, I won't add another one to those lists. So I'll, my two favorite historical books here are Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. It's written in the 1700s and still stands very well to this day. It's like 800 pages. It's a monster, but wow. it's just really good to hear about the fallibility of humans. And how the, not to fuck up. You learn more yeah. from how not to fuck up than how to succeed. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, Kier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and just how organizations can go wrong. Um, the second one is Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. So that is required reading at all U.S. military academies. It's the story that inspired the film 300. It's about Thermopylae, the 300 Spartans, and it's told, um, so it's a historical fiction told from like a first-person perspective of a foot soldier in that army, and it's pretty special. Awesome, man. Where can people find you online? You can find me at coolhandjakegs. That's a play on Paul Newman's Cool Hand Luke. So that's coolhandjakegs on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find, um, find me at welltraveledwellness.com and the handle for that on Twitter is W underscore T underscore wellness. Excellent podcast. Almost as good as the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. <laughs> thank you very much, Kier. Couldn't think of a better compliment. Right, thank you for, uh, for doing this. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you for having me.